so welcome this evening to our midweek service. This is Christ Church International, and you have joined our Wednesday midweek service. And this evening, we have a Get Understanding service. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. The Lord is good, and he always make a way for us to learn some more. So this evening, don't keep your questions to yourself. Ask them. For you have to get some understanding because the Bible says that understanding will guard you. It will keep you from trouble. Amen. Amen. So on behalf of Bishop James Hansen Saki and Pastor Justine Hansen Saki, I want to extend a very special welcome to everyone who's joined us from all over the world. We are really happy that you've joined us and we thank God for your life. And all we want to say is that stay tuned, engage with the service, don't be a spectator. If you have a question, ask it so that we all go away with some understanding this evening. Hallelujah. Amen. So as the service goes, if you have a question, please type it where you are on YouTube, Christchurch HQ, or you can send us a mail to getunderstanding at Christchurches.org. And we are trusting God as always to help us to be able to get through all the questions before the end of the service. Hallelujah. Are we ready? Are we ready? Hallelujah. Right. So we cannot have get understanding without Bishop James. So the Bible says we should give honor to whom honor is due. So let's put our hands together and let's shout with praise and with thanksgiving as we invite our very own Bishop James Hansen Saki. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You're welcome, Papa. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for another Get Understanding. You're I always welcome. say it, we love Get Understanding. That's right. It's um, good, to get it's good for our souls, yes. yes. And so we are happy to have you this evening. Amen. Let's, let's all pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your mercies in the name of Jesus. We pray this evening that your Holy Spirit will bring us understanding. We pray that Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide us into all truth. We pray in the name of Jesus that you will bring truth from your word that will guide the course of our lives. We thank you in the name of Jesus that all of us here and all those who are connected globally on this platform will live blessed and edified and receive answers that will help them walk their Christian walk with understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Um, so this evening, we have a variety of questions that have come in. And um, I think we'll be blessed. We are always blessed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. And we are going to start with some questions around ministry um, as a follow-up from our Love Issues edition. Um, amen. The Lord is good. It's good to have a father who will explain things to you when you don't understand. Amen. amen. Not everyone has this privilege. 
Um, so, Papa, with your permission, yes. I want to start. Good. So, when we had um, our Love Issues Q&A, All right. there was a question about how we balance family and ministry and family and, and the Lord and which one comes first. And we've had quite a few follow-up questions on that. So, this evening, Bishop has um, agreed to explain some more things to us. Um, but before we go into the balance, Papa, I want you to help us with, when we say ministry or someone is working, uh, you know, who, someone is doing ministry, as we sometimes say, mm -hmm. what exactly is it? Is it they're going to church on Sunday and midweek services? Is it going for rehearsals? Is it, you know, joining a department? Is it going for evangelism? Is it doing something else that no one else sees? Um, but it's all to help the, the services and the church to run. What is ministry? All right. Ministry, it's... Uh, when we take it from the Ephesians chapter 4 um, account, from the verse um, 11, the Bible says that... The verses before says, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, um, ascended up on high, and then he gave gifts to men. Uh, these gifts that he gave to men uh, are human gifts. So these are called the ministry gifts, and some to be apostles, some prophets, some teachers, evangelists, and pastors to do the work of the ministry. Uh, the word ministry uh, comes from the Greek word diakonia. Uh, that means works of service or services. That refers to um, any form of service in the house of the Lord, beginning with pastoral ministry, all this fivefold is pastoral ministry. Uh, everything that we're doing from deacons, services to the Lord. So services to the Lord, the, the lowest part of it, which we will not typically classify as ministry, is getting up and going to church. But ministry is actively engaged in any work that will promote the kingdom of God. Um, and the main ministry given to every believer is preaching the gospel to the unsaved, making disciples, and then planting churches. This is the work of the ministry. And that work is quite a lot from both pastoral work to following up a soul to being in, and there are different kinds of ministries too. So apart from maybe, let's say, the pastoral ministries, there are also the music ministries. There's a prayer ministry. There is a counseling ministry. There are all these gifts and administrations. First Corinthians chapter 12 lists quite a lot of them. Apart from the spiritual gifts that were listed there, you will notice that he came to and God has set in the church first apostles. Then he talks about evangelists. Then he talks about ministries, uh, administrations. All these are all different kinds of ministries and giftings of God. That when they all come together to work, promotes the kingdom of God, leads to the establishment of a soul. So whether you are in the prayer department, the ushering department, the worship ministry, choir, uh, preaching, evangelism team, women's ministry, men's ministry, everything that is involved in actually growing a soul, helping to organize church for the kingdom of God's advancement, um, planting churches and establishing churches, 
and establishing souls. All these things are works of ministry. So when we talk about the ministry, we're talking about working in the house of God, not just getting up and going to church. Um, that's one demons even do. Hallelujah. Amen. So Bishop has explained to us what ministry is. Because some of the cockroaches were already in church before we come. <laughs> the chairs are all there in church. All the chairs we go to sit on, they are in church already before we come. We can't say they are doing ministry. Hallelujah. Amen. So you have to be actively doing work that promotes the kingdom of God before you can say that you are doing ministry. So when you are going to church on Sunday, it's not enough because God has called us to ministry. Amen. Yeah. Let, me, let me also expatiate that further. Um, so that same scripture in Ephesians 4, it says that these people who have been given to us as gifts, pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, they are to equip us so that we would do the work of the ministry. So if you go to church, the primary purpose of arriving in church is for pastor to equip you. When you leave church, you are to do the work of the ministry for which you receive equipment for. You see, so you are doing a great disservice to yourself and God when you come to church consistently and do not do the work of the ministry. Because either one thing has failed. Either you are failing God or the pulpit is failing. Amen. Amen. And we don't want to fail God. Um, Papa, please, just, just a, a question to what you were saying. So, you, when you go to church, you go to be equipped so that you can do the work of the ministry. Can you, or are you only able to do the work of a ministry within a department or a ministry in your church. So can you decide that um, I don't really like any of the departments or ministries, um, but me, I've decided that I'll go for evangelism alone and go and speak to people. Um, is that enough or do you have to be in a department or a ministry in church? All right. Um, the, the church is a body. So the scripture refers to it as the body of Christ. And indeed, in teaching these uh, gifts and ministries, there, there was a question that Paul asked that, can the finger say, I don't need the eye? And then also the same Ephesians chapter 4 account, it goes on to say that that which every joint supplies helps for the body to grow um, into one. So the, the ministry or the church is being likened to the human body, that every part is connected. So there's none, I mean, the finger can't say today, I feel like going to Woolwich on my own and, and go and shopping. How would he come home? You know, it's just can't, what, which, which other part of it is he going to use to carry the things it's going to buy? It doesn't even have eyes. Um, so it can't just go on its own. It needs the collective effort of the body. The church is the platform that helps to develop ministries within the individuals who come to church and then helps them to fulfill their ministry. So if you are in church, you say, okay, I'm going to do evangelism alone. If you go to do the evangelism alone, where do you direct the souls to? You know, and how do you do your follow-up on that person? So after you follow the person up, where, where does the person fit in? Where does the person go? You can't just bring them to, if everybody's doing what you said you are doing, 
then where would you actually put them for them to really grow? So you must fit somewhere because when we all come into church, sometimes we don't even know our giftings and our abilities and ministries. It takes the platform that has been set that gradually we grow into it and begin to discover the callings of God and lead us there. So when we go and stand alone and say, I think I like evangelism, you will find out ultimately that that is not really the whole area for you itself. Uh, there will be an aspect of it, but then where do you end? Are you able to disciple that soul, make disciple out of that soul, or are you just going to share tracts? Um, where would you get your teaching from to develop the skill of doing it effectively and coming. So that is why you need to belong to a department um, where you are trained particularly because the departments are all evangelistic. The, the way they are organized will help someone who has been preached to, who comes to church to feel like, let me belong here. And then you, every one of us will realize that because we belong to a department, we grew. But if we were on our own, we would not be able to grow and develop. So it's, it's important to belong somewhere. Um, if you feel that evangelism is your thing, join the evangelism department in the church. Um, you find out that you receive different levels of training for your outreach and your follow-up and how to establish it. So when you go on visitation, how to speak, what do you converse, what do you talk about? All these things are taught the people who go to, who are in the evangelism department, they receive such training to be able to do the work more effectively. And so being part of a group helps you to also grow. It also puts a sense of responsibility on you. Because if I don't belong to any group, nothing really moves me to wake up on a Sunday. If I don't feel like coming to church, I'm not coming. But if I, have a, I belong to a department, a sense of responsibility comes upon me that I can't stay at home. I need to be there to be part of the team that is serving and providing the platform for which another person who comes to church will feel like staying. So we, we play complementary roles in the work of the ministry. And that is why it is called a body and not just um, one part um, of it. I mean, what I'm doing this evening, most parts, the major part of my body working this evening is my mouth, my tongue, and my brain. And because of eyes, I'm supposed to be looking at the camera and sometimes smile to the wonderful people in the room. But, I mean, my legs can't say because they are not going to do anything today. And even the camera doesn't cover that part of my body is I should leave it in the bedroom or in my study and, and come. How am I going to be here <laughs> when, when the food decides it's not coming because it's not going to play any role? So there's a collective work that we do. And in the end, it brings promotion to the kingdom. So when it comes to the ministry and joining departments, the most important scripture to consider is that part in Ephesians chapter 4. Maybe let's read that uh, as a reminder to, to people so that we can Yes, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's take it from verse number 11 um, all the way to 16. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, and I'm reading from the NLT. Yeah. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that, will be, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children, 
We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Amen. Amen. So it's very, very self-explanatory, but it tells us the body and coming together, every part doing its part. And in that way, the whole body then grows together, healthy and growing and full of love. So there is a reason for church. And when we go to church, we now begin to see our pastors in that light. They are those who equip us. So everything we come to church to do, we must always make ourselves available to be equipped so that we will go and do God's work. So we are supposed to do God's work. The members of the church, they are supposed to do God's work. That God's work is called ministry. And of course, the most important or the major part of that ministry is making disciples and planting churches. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Papa. So no one is an island in church. And no one is a republic in church. <laughs> um, I always remember a message you preached a while ago. What are you supplying? What are you supplying? So we all have something to supply to make the body grow and be healthy and um, do the work of the ministry, which is the, the most important one is to win souls and establish them and plant churches. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So, um, Bishop, now that we've, you know, done that foundation work, could you please give us some more detail? You know, um, the last Q&A we had, we, we spoke about the order of priority, and we said that it was God first, the family second, and ministry third. And it's quite a hot topic. So we want some more um, detail on what it means exactly um, to have that order. And how we balance it. Because we know the Bible also says that a false balance is an abomination. So we should be able to excel in all of them. But how do we do that? Okay. Yes, indeed. I think the last uh, Q&A, I mentioned them in that order. Um, I know after that, there have been a lot of practical questions asked on that in terms of implementation. And I feel that it will also be very good for me to clarify that answer. Um, so much as, yes, the scripture says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that we are worried about, including family, health, finances, etc., shall be added to us. So God always comes first. Um, so God is first, but we know that there's also some difference between God and ministry. That is, God is overall in all things. Ministry is working for God. So one way or the other, God still comes first in that way. So I believe that the practical way to look at the order is in order to give us the balance and the practical experience of the order of God first family ministry is to look at it not from the vertical but from the horizontal. So if we look at it from the horizontal or um, you know parallel um, order, you see them all on the same plane, not one above. Now, when we put it that way, it helps us in our balance. Because much as God established the family first, 
and it is the family that feeds the church. If there was no family, who comes to church? If there's no family, it is through the family units that children are produced, and then they grow and fill society. So when we go out to actually preach to anybody on the streets and we want to invite them to church, definitely some family has produced another individual that we go to minister to, and that individual then comes to church. So if there was no family, there won't be people that would populate the church. If there was no family, then Christ died for no one because there won't be any human beings, apart from Adam and Eve, who were not uh, born by any man or woman. Now, so when it comes to the work of the ministry, the wisdom to apply is a careful balance and not a rigid observance of, oh, they said family first before ministry. Because if we go that way, I believe that we will have a situation where one Sunday no one will come to church. And if you ask everybody, oh, it's because family comes before ministry, isn't it? Now, it also means that much as it looks that it will be disadvantageous in terms of church attendance, you also think about it in the context of yourself. That if you are in dire need of your pastor, and he tells you, I think family first, we're going to have trouble. I mean, if I wake up on Sunday morning and I have a little disagreement with my wife before coming to church and I thought, let me settle that one, family first. You all be congregating at church waiting for me and I will never show up. And if I don't show up and you call me, I say, well, it's family first. You know, so that means that we will be, you know, not be applying the ministry very well in terms of using the family first as an excuse. Um, I believe that in the same context, many of you that work, secular work, your secular jobs that you do. If I should ask you whether that and family, which comes first, I'm sure at certain points you will struggle with the answer because there's also a certain point where you actually leave the family for the sake of the work because you can't really be family first all the time and your work behind, you will lose your job. You know? So in the same way, if we begin to look at God in, in that context of he being important and much more important even than our workplaces, then we have a very careful balance of how we approach the work of the ministry without resorting to that order from the vertical where it's like God, family, and ministry. So ministry is always last. But if that is the case, then there would always be some situations where we would not be able to work for the Lord because sometimes the Lord may tell you to maybe minister to somebody. And of course, you may have to leave the family behind a little so that you can go and do that. Um, if we have to stick to family first all the time, we wouldn't plant any church. I mean, Peter was married, but how was he doing the work of the ministry? I mean, apart from Jesus, we knew he wasn't married. And of course, Paul, who we also knew, wasn't married, even though there is a, a, a theological uh, perception that he may have been married somewhere along the line. Um, and maybe probably the nature of his ministry means his wife left him. Of course, it's not there in scripture. The only thing that gives that clue why scholars talk that way is because of the fact that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And by the culture, you can't be a, a member of the Sanhedrin if you are unmarried. So this was the argument that sometimes theologians try to look at to say, if the man was a member of the Sanhedrin, then possibly he was married. But probably the calling of God and the nature of his ministry, probably his wife left him. Um, and they also argue that, I mean, the way he thought about so much on marriage 
but of course, I believe that somebody may not be married, but anointed with the Holy Spirit can also give very good counsel on marriage. Um, but I believe that when it comes to that, we look at it from that balance so that we can wisely look at it. Of course, you can't leave your baby in the house without anybody taking care of the baby and you go and say, I'm going to win souls. You know, that, that is a certain level of irresponsibility. You either leave the baby with someone who can take care, having provided everything, and you can move on. Uh, I mean, Jesus gave us that particular example on the cross. Um, he placed his family in a certain context right on the cross. It was balanced there because his, the dying on the cross is his ministry. But at the same time, it, is, it appears it is responsibility over his mom who may be growing older at this point. And for him to actually hand her over to John, who was by the cross, to say, son, this is your mother now. Mom, this is your son. Sort of handing over that, then he completes the ministry. So that gives us a very clear picture of how, when you look at it from the parallel and horizontal, it makes more sense than placing it that way. If he did that, then he would have ignored his mother and actually gone to the cross. Uh, but then you realize that right at the cross, there was a very clear balance of how he handled it. So I believe that when it comes to that, instead of sticking to family first, ministry last, there are some situations where you realize that you have to really balance it well. Uh, otherwise, everybody will come up with excuses as to why they will not be able to be at their department. Oh, why, is, why are you late to choir rehearsal? You didn't come to choir rehearsal. Oh, family first. Uh, everything family first, and, and that will be the wrong application. I mean, the devil himself knows that it is not family first uh, sometimes. And so let's be truthful with the way we look at the work of ministry. Let's approach it the same way we do our work in our secular places. Why do we, I've seen people who, looking at the situation, they have to go to work. They will have to go to work. Sometimes they will have to keep the child somewhere. Those working from home, sometimes you have to keep the child somewhere for you to continue the work. Are you being unfair? Are you placing work above family? No, there is that balance you needed. And if we could place that importance to that work, then we can place the same importance to the work of the ministry so that we can balance it that way. Whatever needs attention, we weigh it and see, is this a do and die affair? Is this such an emergency that I can't do anything about it. You know, these are the ways that you look at it and look at it truthfully for we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth so that we don't just hide behind, oh, well, family comes to us before ministry. And it's good that you ask the question about what therefore is ministry and that, that once we have that answer, we can look at all this from that perspective. So I hope that I have managed to clarify um, something. Yes, Papa, thank you very much. But I have a few follow-up questions. Yes, yes. So, um, today is a practical day, right? <laughs> when you have someone in ministry who is also, um, who is not in full-time ministry, but full-time employed, how easy is it to balance ministry and family and work? Because if you are full-time employed, and I mean, now people work from home sometimes, but if we look maybe back the past two years, two years ago, where you may have to be in the office nine to five, which means you probably leave home around, I don't know, seven or eight. It means that you have very little time left to be home. So how then do you balance a ministry and the home um, 
just so no one feels neglected and you do not neglect your ministry assignments as well? It's a very difficult balance um, to make. Um, I've been there before, um, so I know that it is not very easy uh, to make that balance. There is always going to be a sacrifice, um, and there must be that intentional um, looking at it from from a mathematical standpoint. You know that you have to uh, that draw a program and see where what are my responsibilities, looking at the nature of my work, uh, the nature of the home situation. There are there are different phases the family goes through. You know, there's a stage where we have got toddlers throughout, and that balance is different from when they are no longer toddlers and they could actually go to school on their own. There's that balance also that comes in, and then there's when they have gone to uni or they are on their own. These are all different scenarios that you can play in that. I think the most difficult part comes in when they are very, very, when children are in and they are very, very young, and also when we are married, and maybe it's even a very young marriage, even when there's no child but we are all involved in ministry and also fully engaged in our workplaces. There is also that stretch. Um, and, and so I have come to realize that many times if we are fully committed to the Lord and we are in ministry, frankly, anybody who is not officially in full-time ministry is already in full-time ministry, uh, unofficially. Because whilst you are working, you realize that the ministry competes with your mind. There are times you are, you are doing your normal work, but you are actually drawing the schedule for, for the next rota for, for prayer department or for the choir and things like that. You, you, you see that you are doing that at the same time. There, there's an equal competition with your workplace, you know, that, that goes on. Um, when I was working in the hospital, there are many times that, you know, you, you have patience to see, but I'm also meditating on the message I'm coming to preach that evening. Because it's a, it's a Wednesday or a Thursday, depending on where we were then, and, and to come to teaching service. And so that, that balance is there in your head. You are, you are working, and the nature of the work means any mistake, somebody will die. You know, so that's a very serious thing to do. But at the same time, you are also meditating on the word to preach. Um, you can't have a break in, in between. So you, you gradually find a way to, to balance that. Um, I remember there was a, a time where I have to take a second job, a look in another hospital before coming to the main hospital where I work and then doing, as for this work, <laughs> before I came to what we call full-time ministry, it's, 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 it has been full-time already, you know, because you are fully engaged in it. But, you know, those, those ones, you have to leave home very early in the morning and, and come also very late. There were times I've come home like 12 a.m. and by 7 you are on your way again. You know, and, and then I think the, these two gentlemen, uh, they have now grown up, but they were then babies. So you have to balance. Sometimes you come back and they are asleep, you know, and you really miss the fellowship with them. Uh, so you wish that in the morning they would have been up. So sometimes I've done the most uh, unthinkable thing of actually trying to wake them up. Uh, so at least, even if they cry, it's fine. At least I, I'm comfortable. <laughs> then, I, then, then I can go. And they will cling on to you, and then you leave them. You know, So they also miss you, but they cling to you, and it's very early, and you have to leave them again uh, to go and come. But you make sure that someone is taking care of them. So that balance is still you know, struck, depending on what we are. We can't neglect the ministry, and we can't neglect the family. So we pray for wisdom to know how to handle it. Um, because every home is like a thumbprint. Some prints look the same, 
but they are not the same. Uh, every marriage is like that. It looks the same, but it's not the same. When you investigate it, you realize that it distinct, there's a distinction between myself and you, even though the thumb, they look the same. So in the same way, much as we can all give the various advice, etc., every home, depending on what is going on in the home, may God give you wisdom to learn to balance the thing. We can't neglect the other. They are, they are like Siamese twins. It's, 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 it's joined. If you cut off one, you kill the other. So you, you go along uh, like that. Uh, but you don't neglect the other. It's, it's that wisdom that you need to balance and see, is there an emergency here? Can I leave this? But we can't, when I say neglect, it means that we, we can't just leave the other person without the care of another. You know, even if it comes to your spouse, it's, it's, it can't just go on like that. There must be that conversation as well. There must be gradually we talk until we all come to that place where it's like we begin to understand this is the nature of the work we are doing. Um, when the other person hasn't yet understood, the other should not shut them down and make them feel like you are not spiritual. No, take your time and explain to the other understanding of the person. Let's work this out together. This is where the Lord has found us, called us into. And definitely whatever the challenge may be, the Lord who sees has already seen that ahead before you came into that point. And I think his wisdom has a way of guiding us how to have the balance. Um, so I, I believe that my answer is clear. It has not been very political. <laughs> Because politicians have a way of talking and they cloud the whole thing. You can't remember where you were. <laughs> Thank you very much, Papa. So, yes, it's not an easy balance, but we have to pray for wisdom. Yes. Hallelujah. Amen. And also talk about it. You see, you, you have to talk about what you consider a challenge. Mm. You know, it's when you talk about it that the other person will have understanding too then you can be able to work it out. If I'm the only person bottling all my challenges within and I'm not sharing what I'm struggling with, because sometimes if you share, the other person will be able to understand and then we can all come together and say, so how do we let this work? You see, and then even then when you want to seek counsel, you don't go to seek the counsel with a very vague question, but it becomes very practical, specific to your very need. It helps in the particular advice that will come specifically to meet that need. So that, that helps in, in dealing with some of these issues. Um, Amen. Amen. That's, from that, I have another question. All right. Um, so you spoke about talking with your spouse or your partner mm. um, and trying to find the right balance. Um, can you turn down a ministry assignment because you know that your partner or your spouse cannot deal with it. So I ask that because I've heard the story of, um, I don't know, a Methodist or Presby um, pastor whose wife, I think, was just tired <laughs> and fed up and maybe not as spiritually matured. She, she wasn't all there. So when they are in church, the wife is, you know, you know the, the, the man's is very close to the church. So the wife is there and he, she's pounding her fufu when everybody else is in church. Um, and she's supposed to be there as well. So in this case, if you have, if you are called upon or if you, you have the calling um to do something, you know, to progress in your service of, of God. And you have a spouse and you know that your spouse will just not get it and it's going to create problems for you. Can you turn it down? Um, you see, I've come to the place of always wanting to bring people's attention to one thing alone. 
who called you to the ministry? You see, is it the Lord? Like the scripture says, for you serve the Lord Christ. Do all things without memories and disputings, for you serve the Lord Christ. So, this spouse, do they believe in the Lord? Do they understand the service to the Lord? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes people talk and say, let's put church aside, let's talk reality. No, there's nothing more real than church. Oh, let's put God aside, let's talk reality. There's nothing more real than God because God is a spirit and God is real. So it is our faith. There's a faith element there. Um, and so some of these challenges come in and that brings us to the question of whether you believe that your spouse is actually working for the Lord. Because if we flip it and it's actually a priest of a satanic shrine, would you put up the same attitude? You will be afraid of the gods. So why do we fear the gods and we don't want to fear almighty God? You know, so there's always this sort of um, popularist or populist mentality. We're sort of like playing to the public, you know, to say, okay, well, I think majority will understand. But then let's fear God first. You see, we have a case in the scriptures where David was married to the daughter of a king who appear not to be spiritual. Um, and that is uh, his first wife, Michal. And to the point that when the ark was being brought from where it was to be brought to Jerusalem, and everybody had gone out to church to bring the ark, she alone refused to come. And she stood up there and watching the procession from a distance, even despising the husband who is also a priest, here. So David is a typical example of a married man with children and yet engaged in full-time ministry. And the wife doesn't appear to be inclined to that. She's set in her ways as the daughter of a king. She's a princess. She's enjoyed that life. Now this calling is very heavy. He's writing books in it. He's got 73 books to write <laughs> because David wrote 73 at least of the, of the Psalms. Uh, of the chapters in the Psalms. So someone like that, who is also not just a priest, but a king, and then also a prophet. So for him, he's carrying three levels of anointings on him, three levels of assignment. There are times he has to leave home to go and physically fight the battles of the Lord. Um, with all this, the woman was despising him. That means that if we look, bring it to our today's terms, she would have wished he didn't go out to church that day. You know, and also you have gone to, because she didn't come along. That means she's not in favor of the service that day. And secondly, she refused to even join anything. And when the man was even dancing, she was despising him from a distance. But we saw the judgment of the God. That's why I said the fear of God is so key here. Um, we saw the judgment of God in the matter. Uh, the Bible says because of this, because of this, she was barren all the days of her life. She's married to the most anointed servant of God. And yet, God closed her womb as punishment. So, we have to be in the midst of all these that we are looking for a balance. We need to be very, very careful that we are not doing it to seek our kingdom first. But we seek his kingdom first. And not to despise our own, but to have a balance. So, in the scheme of things, I'm not going to look at the unhappiness of my spouse. I have to look at my calling with God first. And also have to look at what is the basis of the unhappiness. You know, it's one thing when she's actually in an emergency. 
She's unable to breathe well. We've called emergency services. They have come. I have not even stood there to look at the outcome. I've left. You see, that is not acceptable. Even the Lord will say, that is, your, that is irresponsible on your part. Take care of that. Send information. Let them take care of it. So we have to look at the balance of what is making the other person unhappy. Is it just the person's wants attention at the expense of a ministry assignment? Um, is it something that for this moment alone I can delegate? That when I stand before God, I haven't done anything wrong. Um, and for how long would this be? What would be the basis for which I would refuse to go to do the work of the ministry just because a spouse is unhappy? Um, is the unhappiness related to because I'm going to do the work of the ministry or she's totally not interested in ministry at all? We have to find out then how did we get married? Some people, it has happened like that. There is no, they, they may both not know God and they became saved. And then gradually in the house of God, they grew in ministry. And then the hand of God comes upon them and one person begins to do the work of ministry. So somebody will struggle with that. That will call for counseling. That will call for reasons. But in everything, you don't shut the person down. Just like we just finished. Woman, we focused. I think that many times in conflict, let's, let's focus on what the person is saying. Many times we don't focus on what they are saying. So long as what they are saying doesn't sink well with our spirits, whilst they are talking with we are talking. So throughout the marriage, you may be married for 20 years, 40 years, but you have not actually focused on what the person has been complaining about. That is why the same thing keeps showing itself. And the other person says, but you have been complaining about this for the past 20 years. Yes, but you have not been focused on listening to what I am saying. You know, so it's, it's important to listen to the other person Pay attention, get the picture, and if there's any way you can help the person to come to the place of understanding, then we bring that person to that place. If you can't, you can't do it and you are struggling, then you get someone, both of you respect, to come in and then help the person to understand the nature of this assignment and this calling. So I think that, we, that, that balance is there. I knew that uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, uh, his wife was something else. Some people say she's a witch. I, I don't think so. I, I believe. But she gave him trouble. She gave him a lot of trouble. Uh, so when you study church history, some of these things come up. They all didn't have, you know, spouses that were all coming with them. Uh, but it, it can be very tough sometimes. The nature of the assignment can be tough sometimes. Uh, just that when we learn from the fathers, we also try to make sure there's a balance. Um, I do remember uh, reading the biography of... Uh, the autobiography of uh, Reverend Billy Graham. Many of you would have known him, great man of God. Uh, but uh, as I was studying some years ago, I was reading about him, etc. And I see how they were going for crusades for like nine months. He's not home. You know, eight months, six months. He's in India. He's in Pakistan. He's in these places. All those things go for, for months before finally coming back. Now, I read a very interesting piece. And of course, I listened to him talk about that also. And that, that was very, very striking. At the same time, it was, uh, you don't know whether to put it as pathetic uh, or, or what. But, I mean, to think about it, that the last time you left home was over nine months. And then he had a crusade. As he came back to the U.S., he has a crusade somewhere in the East Coast. Uh, and so, somewhere in California. And at that crusade, his in-laws met him there. And they met him with a little baby. So, you know, after they finished everything... And then they came and said, oh, hello, whose child is this? And they said, you can't recognize, that's your child. You know, that's the <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> that's, that, was, that was nine months ago when that baby came. Uh, you, you've, you've been away. <laughs> Your wife was not feeling well, so he left, she left her, the baby with us. And that's why you didn't see her here. And she's, she's there where you left her. But we have brought the baby to at least meet you here because we don't know where you are going next, where the Spirit of God will be taking you next. But, you know, we read about such people and there have been nine months of being in the crusade platform, planting churches and winning souls. Uh, six months, three months, they go away like that. Uh, but as we also learn from that, we try to see a balance. Uh, but, I mean, it is some way to, to realize that be, because of ministry, <laughs> you have a child that you don't know. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. May the Lord give us grace. Amen. 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 Um, maybe I'll digress a little bit. All right, okay. So is it because of the difficulty of balancing family and ministry that we find some pastor's children um, either growing up wayward or growing up hating, you know, church and ministry and everything around it. That's, that's correct. And that's why there are always lessons to be learned from the generation ahead. It's not to compromise the work, but it's to have understanding to do it well. Because I don't think the same God who gave us a wife and a husband and children wants us to neglect them and just do his work. If he just wants that, then he didn't need to give us this. But if he gave us, that means that he wants us to have a balance. And you can't have balance without wisdom. It will come from God. And so indeed, um, because of our zeal and passion for ministry, especially you know, when you are pioneering the work, the, a lot of things go into the ministry. A lot of sacrifice goes to the work of the ministry. Many pioneers of ministries um, put in more into the ministry than people think because they, their hearts and their whole assignment on earth is this one. There are many things that should belong to the home that is actually sacrificed for uh, the ministry. And so when that careful balance is not achieved and the wisdom doesn't kick in early, the mistake of many pastors is to assume that the children understand your ministry. You know, so we, we go, we keep on going, believing that they understand. But they begin to realize that they don't have that connection. Uh, and so you begin to lose them. Now, little children sometimes don't complain, but you see that in their behavior and attitude. And after a while, they, they, they begin to resent the ministry. They begin to hate ministry because this is that thing that took daddy away. This, that thing that took mommy away, I don't want to be involved in it. Um, I, I kept on saying I'm writing a particular book. It's, it's always uh, towards the end, but it is the dilemma of the pastor's child. Um, and it is in interviewing pastor's children, I, I realized that in, in one of the interviews I con conducted about five years ago, Majority of them, especially the ladies, said they will not marry pastors. <laughs> Just that, you know, fast forward five years later, those of them who were then 18, 19, by then I was asking them, uh, at least about four of them have married pastors. Okay, so, <laughs> but it, it was obvious that the, the thing takes them away. Uh, and everybody who is a pastor's child, especially if it's a pioneer's child, you will notice that is there. 
sometimes they get confused whether their home is their home or it belongs to members of the church. I mean, as they were growing up, my children, there was a time I felt that way for them, where a lot of meetings took place in the house, especially when you are starting work of ministry. So the moment people are coming, you just hurry them, go upstairs. So every time people are coming, they have to go upstairs. So even if you have got a Saturday evening and you want to watch a movie with them, they are all happy. Daddy, today's movie, you know, and they are all shouting, we have to do this. And then suddenly, there's a knock on the door. And it's maybe some people with their marriage issue or something. Immediately, hurry up, go upstairs. You know, so they go up and it's like, is this our home or is this churches? You know, anything that belongs to the home goes to church. From the vacuum cleaner to, uh, you know, tissues and napkins. Anything for ministry just goes straight away. When you are moving, everything is ministry first. Um, so they, they don't. I mean, I remember a few times they... When they were little, you know, some, even sometimes when they were even in secondary school, especially the older uh, two, whenever we go to America, initially they used to like America because my sister is there, and when they go, I mean, they really enjoy it. But they realize that it's always tied to ministry. When we get to America, I'm preaching in places, so I end up taking them there. So I remember some time back, I said, let we go to America. They said, no, we won't go. When we go, it's all preaching. We don't go to do anything. We just go and it's preaching because we are preaching every day at this church and at that church and you take us all. So really, their holiday is just following you on a preaching trail. You know, so again, that if, if you didn't have wisdom to immediately start balancing it, they will grow not to know that. And I remember I have to change something so drastic. Um, I started noticing, I think when they were about um, four, five years, you know, they started calling me daddy pastor. You know, and I was like, no, daddy, <laughs> you know, don't bring the pastor. I see, because they are seeing me as their pastor more than their daddy. And it's, it's also becomes a problem. It, nobody told them that, but it looks like probably this man is our pastor. He doesn't live here because every time he's traveled, he's come back, he's meetings, 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 meetings. So it, it's, it has a way that if you don't balance it well, and if you talk to a lot of pastor's children, they will tell you that, especially when it's a pioneering pastor that you realize that there's a lot of sacrifice that they give away and they don't really get access sometimes to their parents, uh, especially their father, if he's the one pioneering the work. So it has a way if you are not wise enough to start changing things, which of course I picked and started working on early, they will grow to hate the ministry. And because of that also, they, they come up with certain attitudes and people are thinking, oh, but this is a pastor's child. You shouldn't behave that way. No, something is annoying them. They want to do something to really spite the whole thing. You know, I know the, the daughter of a bishop who she's deliberately giving herself for men to sleep with her. She's just doing that, you know, and she's doing that on university campus and it's so clear and dad is just being embarrassed and she doesn't care. She, she just hates the whole thing. You know, and it's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to handle that one. You don't want that, but that has happened, you know. And unfortunately, that, that one was a, it's a, it's a very bad case, but it's, it, it's, 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 it's still going on. She's finished, but she's still, she's not involved. You know, the, I think the, the oldest also has decided not to have anything to do with ministry. Um, so, so it's only the second one, the second boy who is actually in ministry. But it was because of the way it was handled, you know. So we learned from all these lessons so that there can be a genuine balance. I believe there can be a genuine balance. But when we look into the scripture, sometimes we see these failings in the patriarchs, in the men of God. We see David had got the trouble in his house. 
but it's focused on the work of the Lord. The children, they come up with attitudes and behaviors, and sometimes it's bottled up anger against the thing, and, and then they do that. We see Samuel's children didn't turn out well, even though he's a genuine and seasoned prophet of God. I'm sure, again, that same thing, thinking that they would do well, even as if he even forced them into the ministry, because they were doing the ministry, but they were messing up big time, and they didn't care about anything. And so that's is also a, a cause of that. Of course, that same neglect um, leads to the pastor not being there to actually instill virtues and discipline in the children. So they ought also turn out not to be behaving well and people criticize the pastor's children that they don't respect their got bad attitude, etc. Because he's busy in everybody's house except his own. Um, and so there must be that clear balance in the, in, the, in the work of the ministry. I don't think God wants us to do all family and neglect his work, but there must be that genuine balance that will help. Amen. Thank you, Papa. May the Lord help us to be able to balance um, our lives and our ministries well. Amen. Um, Papa, when you're talking, um, and we're talking about um, when you have a spouse who does not understand, I know you said that um, you need to talk to your spouse and all that. Um, do we have instances where you have, like, a, if you may be a head of department or your pastor or your, I don't know, general overseer, who actually are being unreasonable and making requests that does not help you to balance? So are they just, you know, just using people all the time without thinking about their families and their homes? And if you have something like that, how do you address it without appearing to be trying to neglect the work of God? Because maybe if you go and tell him that, oh, um, maybe today I can't come, he's going to think that you are being rebellious or something. So how will you handle such a situation? Yeah, I think that um, as the scripture says, if the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? Um, I've seen ministries that fit into the description you have given where there is such an unreasonable demand uh, for people's availability uh, for ministry work. And I've known cases where someone's sister had even given birth and says, I want to be by my sister's side just this Sunday. I said, no, you are a leader in church. You are not going. You are not going. You know, I, I don't think that is right. So such, when this thing has been weaved into the foundation of the ministry, it becomes difficult to deal with. But I believe that every ministry that wants to have a future must have the wisdom to have a clear balance of the work of ministry and also look at what is going on. Uh, I believe that when people are going to get married, um, I mean, we do it in our church in terms of the counseling bit, uh, premarital counseling. We have the general premarital counseling. But if in the event where the person you are going to marry is a pastor, then the counseling takes another shape because we have to bring these things in to teach how you have to balance these things, how, to you, how you conduct yourself in the home and also educate the other person who is not in ministry to understand this is the way this thing works and this is how you are supposed to operate. Um, I believe that there must always be reason to the demands. We all want availability, commitment, and loyalty. Um, but if someone is, you see, when, like Paul said, they, they are married, they are free. But when you are married, you are not free. Um, when you are not married, especially the only 
thing if you are if you are not married and you are not a child. Okay, that's why you always need parental consent to know where you are, etc. But when you are not married and you are not a baby, you are not a child, etc. There are certain things you can do that you don't need somebody's permission to go, to be available, to do that, to be there for this number of hours. But when you are married, you can't do certain things. You always have to inform the other person. It must tie up with what the plan for the home for the weekend will be for the future is going to be or what we are going to do. So there's always that information bit. So every leader looks at things from that perspective and see that are you being unreasonable in the demand that you are making um, without compromising the ministry? You know, Because sometimes some people have done ministry in such a way as if neglecting your family to come and do the work of the ministry is proof of calling or proof of ministry, you know. I know some church where they have got what they call waiting ministry, you know. Service is over since pastor is not, of course, it's not protocol for you to leave when the senior pastor is still on the premises. But after everything is done, senior pastor is not really doing anything. He's just sitting in the office so that people can hang around for like seven hours till midnight. So, yeah, we stay till midnight. What, what is the point? You know, it's, and people take pride in that. I think it's complete waste of people's time, you know, that they have to go home and organize their homes. They need to rest and prepare for their jobs so that they don't lose their jobs and you have to fast and pray. It's not the devil. It's just that you have, you have wasted their whole afternoon, you know. This service is over. We've done all the meetings that have to be done. Why should people have to wait till 12 midnight? You know, and you two, you are not going. Just to, to establish a pattern of ministry that we are the waiters. For what? Yeah, I went to the office of one of such people, one of my friends, and it, it was then about, you know, 12, 12.30 a.m., almost 1 a.m., and he was still there. So I said, are you there? I said, yeah. I passed by. We had a chat. I said, but how are you not going home? So those guys, they are still hanging around. But I said, ah, but they are married. I said, this one is married. He said, oh, the wife left earlier. He said, what time did service finish? Oh, 8.30. I said, ah, but why are they still here? Because I've just come into your office. We are talking. You are not doing anything special here. Why are they, why are they hanging around? You know, it's just, it's just you're copying something blindly. And, I mean, that one is newly married. He should go home and refresh his wife. You know, but it, it's just, it's that kind of thing. Um, that, that, again, this is the thing I'm talking about. The, the imbalance, the lack of, you know, thinking to see that, yes, uh, the people I'm asking to stay behind, they are, they are married people. And some of them are, they have just married you know, let them let them carry on with their with their life, uh, but then to engage them throughout the night like that is totally, you know, not that they are doing anything. So I think that that is where the the challenge is. Every every ministry should have that uh, sense of making sure that people are not just being dragged to do things without, you know, considering their homes as well. Or their current situation. Um, it, it, there, is, there are phases of ministry that there is a time where they are all students, we are all working, nothing. When they start getting married, you need to start looking at it. That, should, should you still engage them like that? And then when, when, when would they get the time to actually marry properly? <laughs> you know, because seven days a week, they are all in church. Morning, when they go to work, as soon as they finish work, they are in church. Monday to Sunday, 
Yes, it's the work of the Lord. But then at what time do they get time to actually marry this marriage well? You know, I once asked a bishop of a particular church. I said, so why are you blessing marriages then? Because it looks like they don't have any time for themselves. I mean, it's in those places, even holidays are completely refused. You know, so you can't go on holiday. You, you know, and they take present. Hey, we are church. Nobody goes on holiday. We are working. You know, and I, I just think it's, it's not proper. Uh, if we go into this, these are not things that make the church to go. You know, so one church may be applying that and their church is not going, but I don't believe that is the main reason why that church is going. At best, it is producing people there who are afraid and unhappy. But they are afraid that they will be killed or cursed if they leave, you know, but I believe that there must be, every leader must have some kind of conscience and wisdom and to be able to see things and let's, let there be a clear balance in your demands as the ministry grows. Amen. Amen. So if you are a member of such a, a church, mm. apart from praying that God will, you know, change the heart of your, let's say, pastor, mm. What other steps can you take to address the situation? Um, under normal circumstances, from the biblical perspective, you raise the issue with your head of department or the pastor. That is, if the culture of the culture allows it. In some churches, the culture is no approach culture. You know, you can't approach your head of department. They're going to shut you down straight away. You, you, you are uncommitted. You are, you are possessed. You are possessed. You are, you are a Jezebel. Um, I know one of our friends was called a Jezebel because she was raising a very genuine concern uh, to say that the husband is being asked to go on a certain assignment and she believes that he has a weakness. You know, he's, he's, his morality is not sound. So she, being a wife, thinks, look, this thing is not going to work. It will bring an embarrassment. This one, in this marriage itself, he has been unfaithful a couple of times. And I don't see how you are going to appoint him as senior pastor to go and handle a branch somewhere. It's, it's, it's dangerous. And this is all the genuine concern of a woman. You know, she was called names. She was called a Jezebel. She was called a witch. A whole message was preached, don't listen to your wife. You know, all kinds of things were preached. Um, eventually, the marriage is over. But, you know, her, her fear was confirmed. You know, it's not something I had. I went in to also try to mediate. Uh, and she was honest with me to say, this is, a re- this is the only reason why I'm opposing this. I don't think he can handle this. This is going to bring further. The other ones have handled it quietly. But this one, it will, it will expose him. You know, and, and indeed, it exposed him. I mean, the first branch they put him, counseling a young couple, he ended up sleeping with a girl that you are, you are counseling. I mean, how? You know, so the disease is there. It's not cured. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it was just one thing after the other, people's wives and things, and it became a big scandal, and finally they have to move him from the branch <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> move him away from the branch. And then they didn't learn the lesson. Still empire building mentality. They put him in another place. I said, don't put him as a pastor. He's, he's already failing there. Discipline him and put him behind the scenes. Because he's, and they put him there and he messed up again. 
you know, so a wife's genuine concern was shut down, you know, for her, the fact that she was labeled a witch, Jezebel, you know, she was blasted in church, attacked, asked to get up, they spoke to her to get out of here, you know, that kind of thing, just because she has come to express what she believes, what she knows that you don't know. You know, many spouses know their own spouses than what the church. Everybody comes to church. Everybody's angel. People at home knows who you are. So if a wife is believing that, not that she's just using that as an excuse to prevent, they are looking at her that she's using it as an excuse to prevent the man from doing ministry. But she knows very well that this is his weakness and it will definitely come up, you know, and it did. Um, so there must be a culture of fearlessness. When I say fearlessness, that is you should be able to approach your head of department without being afraid. You should be able to approach your pastor without being afraid with questions, etc. But there are certain places the culture is said that you can't even bring a suggestion. You know, you can't say anything. So people are bottling it in and it doesn't work. But under normal circumstance, from the biblical perspective, scripture tells us whatever we are not happy with, we go to the person. We respectfully communicate our feelings. The reason why sometimes they shut those things down to in other places is because when people are given the opportunity to speak, they are rude in, their, in the way they approach the pastor. So sometimes they close those doors completely saying that people don't respect. They think being given the opportunity to speak means you know they can be rude and be disrespectful. But I think that in every situation, there can only be one Judas. The majority will still be 11 who are not like Judas. So one person's misbehavior should not make us close down the, the doors by which people could go to someone and ask questions. Jesus led that way. He is our example. He wanted to multiply bread. He asked a question. His disciples didn't have all the facts. They, some of them said, no, we, this is not possible. Uh, we, we can't feed them with this amount, only in the coffers. You know, that is some divergent view there. But Jesus didn't get angry. You know, it's just the way they also carried it. But he opens the ground for them to always ask questions. The Bible says, and David consulted with the captains of his army. So there's always that consultation. There's always that open door that people can approach their pastor. But when we create a culture that is so toxic that the people can't even ask a question or come up with something that they are not happy with, then it is not God. You know, it is human. It is controlling. It stifles communication. It's not the will of God. The best way is to still raise the issue to say, this is what I'm practically going through at this moment. It's not that I'm not interested in the work, but this is what I'm struggling with at the moment. Then maybe that leader can even help, you know, to advise and tell you what to do. Uh, I know in the past I've asked some people to leave a particular department because I know what is going on in their marriage and to say, no, I don't think you have to be in prayer at this time. I want people in the prayer department, but prayer will disturb you uh, because of what is going on in the house and the time that the gatherings do their prayer. Sometimes they have got all night on Fridays, etc. With what is going on in your house, if I continue to demand your presence there, I think this marriage will break down. So I think, let me free you on a Friday. And I think, let me take you also out of this department and stay only in one department until your circumstance change then I encourage that. So you, you are thinking and pastoring the people with the heart of a pastor, not with the heart of a slave master. Hallelujah. Yay. Amen. Thank you so much, Papa. We are learning a lot. 
And if you've just joined us or you are not with us at the start, you're welcome to our midweek service. This is Christ Church International, and we are having a Get Understanding service, and we have been talking about ministry. Hallelujah. Amen. Um, so, Papa, if yes. you are in a, in a church that has such, you know, an environment where you can't talk, you can't, you know, complain, <laughs> you can't do anything, can you leave? Um. You, you can leave, but those places where they have got such cultures becomes difficult to leave. Because you yourself, that's how you have been wired. So even when you want to do what is right, your mind is telling you you are in the wrong. Then there will be an army of people that will attack you for deciding to leave. Um, and so the fear of being called names the fear of being attacked makes people stay in such places no longer with their heart, but the fear. Uh, but from the biblical perspective, God created us with a free will to make a choice. Um, we are called shepherds. You see, that's why I like using the word shepherd more than just leader. Um, so if you are a shepherd, you shepherd the flock. The Bible says, and David shepherded them, Psalm 78 verse 72, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and by the skillfulness of his hands. So there must be that heart into the work. And in leading the people, you are a shepherd. So you guide more than a slave master that is driving people to do things. Like slave masters, they don't care about you. They want results. You know, but we have not been called to be slave masters. You have been called to be shepherds of God's flock. So you guide. And so even if you want a certain level of commitment, you teach it. And you bring them to the place of understanding. I believe that when people understand something, they can do it with their whole heart. If you don't understand something, you have been driven to do something, it becomes a difficult challenge. You know? So yes, you can leave. Because a lot of the things going on there may not be biblically right, where it becomes control than direction. Amen. Amen. I have one last question on ministry. Yes. And then we have some other questions here. If you're head of department or a pastor and you're head of a ministry and you have a department member who is always using the excuse of family, and maybe sometimes you even know that that's it's just a lie. It's not. It's not. What What do you do? How do you you know work on the situation? Do you call the person out? Do you just pray and hope that the person will change? Oh, um, <clears throat> I think you start once you observe it for a while. You you must call the person. And if the system has got its own code of conduct and ethics there, that also has to be brought up. But then, first of all, to find out what is actually going on. There are times you'll be able to use specific examples to point out this excuse you give. We, we, we are old enough to know it is an excuse. Um, it doesn't help. Where is your faith here? Um, the scripture says, we serve the Lord Christ, and it is of the Lord that we will receive a reward. So we have to be very careful how we use family as an excuse not to do the work of the Lord. Because it becomes very dangerous sometimes. This God is some way. I keep on saying that. He's giving us a disclaimer. His ways are not our ways. 
uh, if you observe him very carefully, the very thing that we try to substitute him with, he has a way of taking it away. You see, and bring you down to a place where you will learn some lessons. So when we are dealing with God, we need to be careful. But the, the approach is to call this person and have a conversation with the person. It will help you to know the commitment level of this person and ask also whether this, this ministry, do you understand the ministry? You know, if the person is an usher, you ask the person, I mean, maybe we have to revisit the whole thing. What was the circumstance in which you decided to join the ushering department? Uh, when you are received into the department, did you understand the induction process of what is required of you um, and how to balance this? What is your greatest challenge? Sometimes a leader should be able to ask that question. Um, sometimes you ask the person, what is your greatest strength? And then you move the question again to ask, what is your greatest weakness? And wait to hear. Because if they are honest and they tell you what their greatest weakness is, you have done halfway of solving the problem. And knowing that maybe this department is not good for the person. Probably it is the choir which is good for the person. Or it is actually the media department which is good for the person. Uh, but we want to establish commitment first. Because it is not every department. That, so sometimes I hear people say, oh, I want to go to media. As if it's very easy there. <laughs> it's not easy, you know, it's the perception. But every ministry is, is hard. It's hard work. It engages, it takes a lot from you. So when you don't understand it and say, oh, I think Austrian is too difficult, I want to go to media, you will soon find out that there's a certain level of demand there and then very soon you leave that. So we have to find out whether it's a commitment problem, you know, and not just a departmental problem. So the conversation will bring all those things out. If we continue to find lack of commitment, we have to teach the person commitment. We have to teach the person that your commitment is not to me. Your commitment is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to use the scriptures. Many times the scripture has a way of convicting people if we use the scriptures, you know, rather than abuse, insults, and threats. Those things don't work. But if we use God's word, the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing conviction to people's hearts. There are people who today may appear uncommitted. But over the time, with good training, teaching, and continuous teaching, suddenly they pick up and they become committed. I mean, times uh, we have seen it in our ministry. You know, there are people who we couldn't tell how many times they come to church. You know, even in a whole in a whole year, we can tell how many times they came to church. But when the church was rather in trouble, that's when they became committed. You know, and it's very amazing. You know, and their commitment has not changed. So it's the same thing. Sometimes commitment grows. Um, let's not forget that there was John who left Paul and uh, Barnabas at the first missionary journey. He felt probably maybe it is too much. Uh, this is too much. And this is not what I thought of. I thought everything is going to be rosy. The way headquarters is established and all of that. And Paul and Barnabas are going to start branches and they are visiting. So let's go. And then he went. And I'm sure by the first two villages they went to, he realized that no. We don't have water closet here. You know, things are not the same. It's not the way we thought about it. And the Bible says he abandoned them and he ran back to headquarters. So sometime later, when Paul came back to headquarters and gave report, and then they want to go again, Barnabas want to take John Mark with them. And Paul said, no way, it's not happening here. And of course, his strong choleric nature came into play, and they had a very serious disagreement. So Barnabas and Paul separated their ways. But Barnabas, pastor, took... John Mark with him. 
Then we saw what happened later on. So many years later, when those Paul also trusted they were the ones who were committed, but their commitment has now waned. Uh, he wrote and said that Demas has forsaken me. Uh, he has loved this present world. That means he's backslided. But this is a man he, he took with him. He, he loved that. And that one rather failed him. And then he wrote and said, bring John Mark. He is profitable to me for the ministry. You see, so everybody could have given up on him, but Barnabas did not give up on him. Barnabas has a pastoral heart to know how to take somebody from a state of total uncommitment abandonment of the ministry and still put commitment in the person somewhere along the line that the person became so useful later on to the one who thought this guy we don't need him anymore the way he left us when we went to Thessalonica and we went to plant church and they stoned us and he ran away I don't think I want to go with him again but when he fell into the hands of another one who is a pastor Paul was not a typical pastor he's an apostle and he's hot-headed and he's going to get things done you know so uh, it's just like a prophet I mean they see they see hell before they see heaven so they are always warning and always warning, you know. But a pastor has a heart that is able to take the one everybody gave up on and gradually mold them to get to the place where they become committed and ultimately become useful to the ministry. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Ministry is hard, <laughs> but God expects a balance. Hallelujah. Amen. If you forget anything today, don't forget the fact that Bishop has taught us this evening that God family and ministry it's not a vertical axis it's a horizontal axis and we have to have all of them and we have to balance them hallelujah amen amen, amen. so we are moving on from um ministry and we are going to um another interesting question papa so um it says that uh, Muslims believe that Jesus must never be worshipped. They believe that he's one of the prophets and he must not be worshipped. And they also believe that he never asked anyone to worship him. And there is no verse in scripture where he was specifically worshipped. So they claim that he only asked people to worship God the Father. Um, is that true? <laughs> it is not true. Um, if we look at the same scripture, they are saying that there's no verse of scripture where Jesus actually asked anyone to worship him. We see verses of scripture where he was worshipped, not when he has left to heaven, but right in his presence, he was worshipped. Um, I think that the first scripture that comes to mind is John chapter 9, uh, verse 38. And this was after, I believe, he had healed a man cured him of his blindness. The man was born blind. And when Jesus healed him, he made a very interesting... Please read that for us. John 9, 38. Yes, Lord. Maybe I take it 37 so that we bring the 38. 37. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please take it from 36 so that maybe those who don't have Bibles. All right. 30, should I do 35? Okay, take it from 35. <clears throat> when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked him, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. Amen. Amen. He worshipped Jesus. Now, when you read your scriptures, especially in the New Testament, Sometimes some people have been worshipped and the, the 
again, as we've always been teaching you, the words in the scriptures uh, have got root meanings if you look at them properly in context. So sometimes people are worshipped, um, and it is a civil worship. So bowing before a king, you know, bowing, doing obeisance to a, a high military general, and all those ones are some form of worship, but they are the civil worship. Uh, but then there is also the divine worship where that person becomes the object of your affection and worship because of the fact that you believe that one is deity. Now, the word worship that was used in the verse 38 is in the context of deity. So he worshiped Jesus as God. And that is very, very important he worshiped him as god because jesus asked him do you believe in the son of man and of course they every proper hebrew and jew knows that the son of man is actually going to be the son of god that is why one day when he spoke like that the jews were upset with him that you are blaspheming because you are claiming to be the son of god um, so when he said that the man said yes i believe and he worshiped him right in jesus presence he accepted worship so that means that it is, it is very clear in scripture. Jesus is worshipped. It's not only the father who is worshipped. The son is also worshipped. Um, Luke chapter 24, verse 52 and 53. We see another instance where right in his presence is worshipped. This time he's worshipped by a man who he has just met on the streets and cured of his blindness. This time... The second instance in Luke 24, 52 to 53. Luke 24, and please should I start from 50? Okay, take it from 50 so that people will get the context again. <laughs> then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. Amen. Amen. They worshipped him. He was standing there with them. They worshipped him. If he doesn't accept worship, he would have rejected it there and corrected them. He accepted the worship. So this time around, it is his disciples who are worshipping him. And he's accepting the worship. The previous one, it was another man who is not a disciple, but has become someone who has believed in him and has worshipped him. So there are clear scriptural evidence that he accepted worship. If he didn't say anyone should worship him, he would have immediately made sure that that doesn't happen in his presence. That would have been a very clear, indirect way of actually commanding, don't worship me. But if he accepted the worship, and again, if you look at the Greek context, you see again that word, worshipping him as deity, not civil obedience or obeisance. It is actually deity. So they are worshipping him in the context of being God and deity. Um, third example uh, will be Matthew 28, 16 to 18. Matthew 28, 16 to 18. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, 
I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen. Amen. So again, we see here the apostles, the same situation in the scripture we read. Luke accounted for it differently, whilst Matthew presented it this way. But we have got more than one scripture that is telling us the disciples worshipped him. So Jesus is worshipped. There's one more example where he was worshipped. The context there was not deity, but as king. And it's just because of the people who came to worship him. I don't think they had seen him then as king, uh, but it can be argued both as king and deity, but the scripture is very clear. It was more of the civil one, but that is the wise men in the Luke chapter uh, 2 account, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Matthew 2, 11. Matthew 2, 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Amen. So here he was a child, and these wise men had come to bow and worship him. Now, they were not Christians. They were not Jews. We only see the context in which they are bowing to him as king. The reason why we are not making so much a strong case that they are bowing to him as God is because of what they themselves said to Herod when they got there. That they came to the palace to ask, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Unless this wise man has a prophetic understanding that the king of the Jews is also God the son, then we would argue that they worshipped him in the context of being God. But here, they worshipped him in the context of being a king, and we know that he is also king. So this is the three places at least where we saw him being worshipped directly in his presence, and the fourth one is when he was a child, and they came to bow down and worship him. So what the Muslims argue, we have the scriptures before their faith was founded. They can't educate us about the scriptures. Uh, they take our scriptures out of context. And indeed, their Quran is a poor plagiarism of the Bible. Um, and they don't have the key to salvation. The key is in Christ, and it is the word of God. And so sometimes they, they argue on these grounds because they don't worship. They worship their Allah and they claim they worship him directly. Uh, so they bow. And what they consider as worship is to put your head down. So they always say Christians are standing. Christians are not bowing. No, you don't understand how we worship. For the Father seeketh such to worship him, to worship in spirit and in truth. People can be physically putting their head down and their heart is not with the Lord. That is not the, the right way. So Jesus is worshipped. And up to this evening, he is still worshipped. Amen. 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 So we worship the Lord um, in songs. We worship him with our lives. And we worship him in prayer. Yes. And I have a question related to prayer. Right. It says that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2, mm. that when we pray in unknown tongues, mm. we do not know what we pray for. Mm -hmm. And um, the Bible says it's mysterious. You pray in the spirit and it's mysterious. Mm. The question is, why then do we pray in unknown tongues when a specific prayer topic has been raised? Okay. 
because we know what we are supposed to be praying about. Right. <laughs> right. So when we raise a prayer topic, it is announced in the known tongue so that we can all understand the prayer topic. Um, and before I answer that question, let me also explain that bit because First Corinthians 14 has been misunderstood by many to mean that you know, if there's no one to interpret, don't speak in the tongues. But the tongues he's talking about here, he didn't say don't pray in the tongues. Mm. He's talking about if we have all gathered together and suddenly I want to, it's time for me to preach, then I come and stand there and I'm just preaching in tongues. You know, that's what Paul was correcting because already he has given us the preamble to say that when any man is praying in an unknown tongue, his understanding is not part of it. His spirit man, the real you, is the one doing the prayer. And then he also went on to say, no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he's speaking mysteries directly to God. That means that you should therefore not have any worry if I'm standing publicly and praying in tongues. Because the scripture says, I'm not talking to you. Why do you want to be inquisitive to know what I'm talking to God about? The scripture is so clear. A man, anyone that prays in unknown tongues is actually speaking directly to God. Having laid this foundation and corrected that thing, that's why people say there shouldn't be a prayer in public. No, he's speaking in tongues in public. He's talking about talking to people in tongues, not praying in tongues. Because the prayer itself, you are not supposed to understand it. So that's not the issue. So when it comes to the prayer topics we raise, when we raise a prayer topic in English, we start praying in English, and then suddenly, sometimes, it moves on to, to tongues. Um, and it is... Your spirit man is supposed to be doing the prayer. So somebody can continue to pray in English throughout. But you know that at a certain level of travail, the spirit takes over. You know, your spirit man takes over and it try and continues to pray in tongues. So, yes, we have understood the prayer topic in English, but we are praying in tongues directly to God. It, it happens. That switch in between takes place. It, it is, there's nothing wrong with that. It is only when the the prayer topic was raised in tongues that we don't understand. And then we continue to pray in tongues. That is what we will say. What did you understand that you are praying? But if we are praying in known language, there's a certain level of the travail where tongues itself are words which the Holy Spirit gives to us to aid in the prayer. So there's a certain level of prayer where we don't know what to say anymore. We don't have all the physical words to describe. Your spirit man does the prayer now for you with words that cannot be you know, explained in human terms, but then it goes up to God as prayer. So it is possible to have that English um, or the known language prayer topic, but as we continue to pray, it shifts uh, to that. So there are times I want to pray, and in my head, I know the prayer topic I want to pray in my closet. And as I begin to pray, I pray in English for a while, it shifts into tongues. And you realize that in tongues, you are able to pray for a very long time than when you are praying with the understanding. Because at understanding, at a certain point, you are finished. You have said all that you have to say, but the burden is there. Because with understanding, you wonder whether you can really go for three hours. But with tongues, you are able to go for three hours, and you wonder, where is this strength coming from? And then somewhere along the line, it shifts. And then you begin to say, quote some scriptures in English, and then it changes back again, and it goes on and on. So it is at that depth and that point where the natural human expression gets to its limit that the spirit takes over um, and, and picks it up from there. That's why the scripture says in the first, in the Romans 8 account, where it says, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. 
but the spirit himself. I think let's look at it in the NLT. <clears throat> Very interesting, Pastor. <laughs> 26. Yes, yeah, so, and then to 27, yes. Okay. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. So the Spirit is doing a prayer. The Holy Spirit is doing a prayer with your human spirit. He holds together with your human spirit to do a prayer. And is able to express those words directly to God in ways that you are unable to express it. So it, it is our prayer language. And so the communication may come in a known language. But at a certain point, the, the way we need to pray that prayer, our human finite mind is not able to get to that point. The Holy Spirit takes over and does the prayer with our human spirit, communicating directly with God. And that's what the scripture, Paul has put it beautifully here. And the NLT, you know, the King James is some words there, but the NLT brings it so clearly to say that the Holy Spirit therefore prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who then knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit, therefore, is pleading for all believers in harmony with God's will. The Holy Spirit helps us to actually pray clearly into the will of God, rather than our own imagination. So that is the power of speaking in tongues and praying in tongues. Hallelujah. Um, Papa, I've yeah. heard um, someone say before that when you are praying on your own and you are praying in tongues, that's fine. Or when, let's say, it's a prayer department and you are all praying in tongues, that's fine. Mm. But if, for instance, you are leading, um, let's say, a service mm. and you have people who may be unbelievers. So let's say it's an online service. Mm. You might have people who are unbelievers who are joining, mm. people who don't understand why we speak in tongues joining. So if, for instance, you are leading the intercession and opening prayer, mm. don't speak in tongues. Just pray um, in English or whatever language it is so that they will know what it is and are not, you know, confused or um, forced to leave the service because they don't really know what's happening when you are praying in tongues. Is that, <laughs> is that valid? Um, it, is, it is not valid. Um, I have come to realize that the church must not do things to please unbelievers. We are of a kingdom that is not of this world. They must desire to ask questions to understand what we are doing. But we must not compromise what we do to try to please them. That is not what will save them. Having said this, back to the question. If the person leading the prayer raises the prayer topics in English, that is the proper thing to do. Depending on the country, if they are in China, you raise the prayer topic in Chinese. In German, you speak Germany or Switzerland, it's German. So people could understand the prayer topic. So if this unbeliever has joined, I shouldn't stop speaking in tongues because he unbeliever has joined. If I'm speaking in English and he won't pray, he won't pray. Even if it is, it is in English or in his own language. If he doesn't know how to pray, he won't know how to pray. But of course, 
the prayer topic has been raised in English, so he carries on praying in his English. If I continue to pray and pray in tongues, I am not speaking to him. It is not his business to understand what I am saying. The scripture is very clear. He that speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to men. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries unto God. When it comes to summarizing the prayer, for instance, let's say you are not leading intercession, but you have just been called to lead the opening prayer. So we have to know the difference. When you are called, this is what we call stage ethics when we are training leaders, stage ethics. Stage ethics, you are called to come and do opening prayer. Don't lead us in intercession. Stand there straight away and say, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, depending on what the service is. If it is a morning service, we are about to start the service. They say, come and lead us in opening prayer. You don't lead intercession. You stand there and say, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and commit the service into your hands. We ask that your Holy Spirit will lead the service, let your anointing be present, your power, etc., whatever. Pray for everyone that has a role to play. Stand in and pray for all of that and declare the meeting open. If you are called to pray at a wedding reception, they say, pray the opening prayer at the reception. Don't lead us in intercession. Don't do any of all those things. Don't pray for the couple. Don't do, no. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you this afternoon for bringing us to the reception. We pray you bless the food, the drinks, and everyone that is here. Let nobody be poisoned from this food. We pray in Jesus' name, let them enjoy the food. Amen. You finish. It's simple. Come and do closing prayer at the end of the reception, at the end of the party. Whatever. Don't do intercession. Close the service. Close the prayer. That's why it's called closing prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for all that you have done, for bringing us to this place. Thank you for the food we have had, the dancing, the enjoyment. Thank you for the person who had the birthday or the person who had the wedding anniversary, whatever. All those things, we thank you. Take us home safely. The Lord bless you and keep you. You continue and finish the service. Simple like that. When you are called to come and lead us in intercession, you raise prayer topics. So you raise prayer topics. And so if you are given 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes to lead the intercession, you lead that from that time that you were given, 10 o'clock to 10.28. Then the last two minutes, you summarize the prayer and pray the opening prayer to finish it. So that, is, that will be prayed in English. When you raise the prayer topic, it will be in English. When you are praying the prayer, it can be in tongues, and you owe nobody any explanation, online or offline. So that. It is a way. The Bible says, therefore, tongues are a sign to unbelievers too. So let them ask the question. Then we can teach them that, oh, yes, you heard some people speaking some language. Yes, this is the scripture. Then we take them from Acts chapter 2 and bring them all the way to chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 19. And then we teach them the progressive nature of this. We bring them to 1 Corinthians and share with them what the whole thing is about so that they get the understanding. So if we cut off completely for fear of unbelievers, of thinking of pleasing unbelievers, they will not be able to ask this question. You know, the day the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost, he could have allowed all of them to just speak Hebrew quietly. But it was the noise of tongue speaking that attracted the crowd, that brought the 3,000, and their inquiries about the language is what led to their salvation. Peter just have to pick it from where they were saying, oh, these guys are drunk. What's this that is going on? Peter said, no, we are not drunk as you suppose, but this is that with the prophet Joel prophesied, that in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
and then he began to teach from there. So when we pray in tongues, it's a way that also opens the floodgates for people who are genuinely interested to ask a question. And we must be ever ready with the scriptures. And as if you're in Christ church, you should have the scriptures at your fingertips and lead anybody to understand tongue speaking. And when you finish that, put your hands on them and pray in Jesus' name. They'll begin to pray in tongues in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. And I have one last question for okay, you. Okay. I'm still on tongues. Yes. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 mm-hmm. that we must desire the gifts of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. what exactly is desire? Um, is it you know, just thinking in your heart that you want to speak in tongues? Is it praying? Um, how long must you desire it for? Um, if you've, you know, you've desired it, you've prayed for it a year, two years, three years, and it's still not coming. Are you doing something wrong? Is, is it maybe just your lot <laughs> that, you know, maybe God has just decided that it's not time for you yet, or you are just not ever going to speak in tongues? All right. Um, the scripture always links desire to prayer. Um, and indeed, any of us as humans, whenever we desire something, we start moving into action. You can't have a latent desire without a corresponding action. Um, So the scripture says in um, the account in Luke, no, Mark 10, Mark 11, 22, where it says that, you know, have faith in God. Then it says, whatsoever you desire when you pray, uh, believe. So we desire, then we pray. So desire follows prayer. Um, Whatever we are desiring, we want to move to act it out. So there must be that desire um, to be filled with the spirit, um, especially with the ability to speak in unknown tongues. So that should be one's desire first. And that should be one's prayer. Um, Throughout the scriptures, we see that the events where it happened, either an apostle is present to lay hands and to pray. Um, Throughout church history, that has been the case. And for some of us, we have also done that from secondary school. Laid hands on people, prayed, and they began to pray in tongues. Some we didn't touch them, they also spoke in tongues. Um, So it, it carries on like that. When it comes to individuals, there are things that, as the scripture has said, much as we can see it in the scripture, that the grand scheme of things, this is the will of God for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to speak in tongues. We have also seen that in practice, some people don't speak in tongues or don't pray in tongues. Um, There are some we don't understand, and we may not try to take the place of God to try to look for answers definitely. But of course, it is also your duty as a pastor to try to find an answer because your member who is not is getting worried to think, am I a sinner? Uh, have I done something wrong? Um, I don't think we need to go into that area uh, because sometimes in the past, that is what some people have been told and that makes them wonder what is the extent of this sin that can't be forgiven by God. Uh, so when we were in secondary school, that's what we used to think. That why is that person not speaking even though a lot of people have spoken? Um, I remember one three-day we had when we were in sixth form, and I was to preach on the Holy Spirit from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
and on Sunday, I asked everybody to come forward. There were over 350 people that came forward to receive Holy Ghost baptism. I think only two people didn't speak in tongues. Everybody spoke. Some started prophesying, etc. So, <coughs> sorry, when that question comes up, we started thinking maybe probably these ones, they are sinners or something like that. But, you know, it, it, is, it is not uh, the case. If they are not born again, it's a different matter. But if they are born again, only God knows why. Sometimes, in the course of time, it may. The others we have prayed for. I know somebody we prayed for several months. He didn't speak. I think somewhere in upper six, then, then he started speaking in tongues. The others too, they come forward, we lay hands. They never spoke in tongues. They went back home, taking their bath, singing amen, amen, blessings and glory. And then they started speaking in tongues. You know, others too come to church. When they went home, trying to pray, and then they start speaking. So, you know, it's not, it's difficult to tell because in the end, it is God by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. The pastor will take, will initiate, but it is God who finally does, Jesus who does the baptism ultimately. It is our prayer that everyone will, but some people don't, and we don't know why. I won't claim that I know why. Um, so long as there's salvation and forgiveness of sins, and the person has been born again, the Spirit of God is already in that person in a measure. It is the ability to speak in unknown tongues. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes the person who is thinking, you know, that, mm, how does it sound? You know, it doesn't sound like everybody's own. Mine is just, me, 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 me. I don't like that. No, if yours is that, start with me, me, me. very sweet. We can and it's just going on. So it just starts from somewhere. Many times people have not, not because they were not filled, but their mind was also coming into it to think, how, how would this sound? Mm, to start very ridiculous now, I don't think. Mm, this one, the way it sounded, it doesn't like, it doesn't sound like pastor's own. Mm, I don't like, hey, pastor has been speaking in tongues for more than 40 years. His own is different from yours. So start from where you are. Um, so some of these things may happen. I mean, someone like Reverend Billy Graham did not speak in tongues, but he, he was winning souls and having a great evangelistic impact across the nations of the world. So, you know, we can't say that he wasn't of God. As to whatever the reason, we don't know. There are things that are within the remit of God and, and they are not within our remit. What is revealed to us, we run with it. When something doesn't, just like healing, um, God has clearly said it in the scriptures, he desires to heal us. Uh, but then we have also found people who have not been healed. And, and indeed, if you read the scriptures, I think Timothy, Paul was writing and said that, um, you know, Epaphras, was sick to the point of death, you know, and I have prayed for him and I'm thanking God that he didn't make him die, lest I sorrow upon sorrow. So this is the apostle himself, has one of his men sick. He said, we cried to God, it, it, you know, it, it didn't happen for a long time. And himself is always having Dr. Luke with him. You know, so these things, they fall within the sovereignty of God. Uh, he's sovereign, he's God, he does what he pleases. The majority of things we will see, the rest of the things will be the exceptions in Scripture, and we still leave it to his judgment. He knows what to do best. But it doesn't mean that the fact that some people don't speak in tongues means that that means tongue speaking is wrong. Because some people argue from that point to say it has ended. It can't end. If it ended, the Holy Spirit would not have to be on the earth. How can the giver of these gifts be around and he's not functioning in that anymore? It, it, it doesn't make sense. 
And so if some people can stretch their faith to walk in the miraculous or experience this, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit gifts have ceased operation. And so those ones are in operation. Miracles, signs, and wonders have not ceased. They didn't die with the last apostle. It is the Holy Spirit who works in us to work these things. At the same time, those who also are in Christ and are not speaking in tongues, it doesn't mean that they are filled with Satan. It doesn't mean that they are not born again. It doesn't mean that their salvation is not complete. It just means that God still remains God. And it doesn't mean that if they prayed in English, or anything, God does not hear. God hears. Hallelujah. Amen. God still remains God. Amen. 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 Church, please put your hands together and join me. As we say, a very big thank you to you, Papa. Um, I mean, we've learned a lot this evening. You've equipped us um, in a lot of ways to serve God in spirit and in truth and to be able to go out and do the work of the ministry. So we are very thankful. Amen. Amen.